Good evening. This is wonderful. You're making... This is wonderful. This is the second time tonight that I've had to say, shh, the stereotypical librarian, but that means that there's a lot of excitement in the room, and we're so pleased that you could be here tonight for a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and several people have asked a few questions um, before we started. One, why does this lovely couple need to sit in front? Well... Today is their anniversary, and the husband has generously, uh, this is part of it, so they're going to leave for their dinner reservations, but she said, we have to come here, honey, so Susan, you're keeping a marriage together, it's good, that's one thing, right, so forget, this is Fifty Shades of Susan. Okay, so do that. Another lady said, who are all these nice-looking young ladies? And young, I, I, that are they, what, what group is that? I said, well, Susan has a lot of fans and friends in Baltimore, and they came out to be with her tonight, and so that's what you're seeing, the people who've been here for her for quite a while, first book, second book, so they're here. So this is her fan club. So, you know, so you have that. And we're just pleased. And another question um, is that this presentation, as others in our Writers Live series, will be podcast. So you can actually download it, put it on your, from iTunes and all of that, and I better stop because that's all I know about that part. <laughs> but it is available in the air. So thank you. Um, I know you can't wait to hear from Susan. Her first book was really uh, a love fest, and you couldn't read it without falling in love with your mom. Always wear joy, my mother, bold and beautiful. And it is now, it's almost hard to get because so many people know about it, and so that's one. And then there was the book, One Flight Up. (laughs) And if you look at the cover now, you see the cover is very explicit, It gives you a sense. And then the book that I spent about six hours reading cover to cover, In Perfect Bliss. And I'll just tell you this. It's about a family that becomes part of a reality series. And the name of the reality series is The Virgin. Pause. Okay? That's all you need to know. Think about that. So... Susan has been uh, a writer on The Cosby Show, A Different World. Um, She co-created the series, uh, Lines, and she was the executive producer. She's a contributing editor for Essence. Her writing has appeared in Vogue, Town & Country. She's appeared as Susan in Town & Country and Essence and Travel & Leisure. And so she is, of course, a delight, and we just are so pleased to welcome you back to Baltimore, back to the Pratt Library, and back to your fan club, Susan Fails Hill. Thank you very much, Miss Carla. And before I go any further, let me thank Judy Cooper, who helped organize all of this, as well as the member, uh, the the uh, leadership of the Young Contemporaries, which I have aged out of <laughs> as of ten years ago. I also want to thank Jason and Robin for coming here tonight. Uh, you have obviously learned, Jason, that the secret to a happy marriage are the uh, words "Yes, dear." So. Um, <laughs> If imperfect bliss is marriage with children, I think you'll have a little perfect bliss tonight for being such a great guy, so I hope you enjoy it. 
Uh, I have to confess to you all that I invited myself here. I, I had, when this book was coming out, I said to the, the publicist at Simon & Schuster, call, <laughs> call my friend Carla, call the Enoch Pratt Library. So uh, the, one of the characters in this book is an inveterate social climber and pushy woman, and I, I think I was borrowing a page from her book uh, because, as a friend of mine said, we have to overcome our bourgeois reticence. Dignity and manners are getting us nowhere. Uh, we <laughs> <laughs> we are showing up at the airport with our toiletries in a baggie, and people like the Kardashians, who have no manners, are going around in G5. So <laughs> it's time to get over uh, dignity. I'm particularly thrilled, as I was uh, telling uh, some of you earlier, to be at a library, because I grew up in libraries. I had a library in my home. We, we are big bibliophiles uh, in, a, in my family, and I do all my writing at the New York Public Library because otherwise I would accomplish nothing. Thank you very much, Marcia Jews. <laughs> and uh, I also believe that libraries are a vital convening point. We are such a separate society now in every way. We're all in our little silos. We're all texting. And there is something about the sense of community, about coming and touching the primary materials and coming to talks like this or other talks that really knits us together as a community uh, of human beings, white, black, Chinese, and everything in between. Uh, and for me, with my writing, when I think about whenever I have to go on book tour, I have to think about, well, why did you bother to put these words down on paper? And in all my writing, uh, the, the thread is that I am trying to create uh, a, a, a sense of community among human beings in spite of apparent differences. And I'm also uh, very much trying to preserve uh, the dignity of, of the stories of, uh, of people who um, uh, come from the African diaspora because there is not enough uh, celebrating our rich heritage, our diversity. In this city alone, you have such extraordinary stories. And I feel like I'm, we're very much fighting this. This is the cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. I don't know if any of you saw it, but it's a story about nannies, which, first of all, why does that rate a cover? Because only 3% of Americans have nannies, so let's start there. <laughs> but second of all, as someone who grew up around extraordinary black women, my own mother, who was a groundbreaking performer, Diane Carroll, Lena Horne, women who were judges, I think, really, black women are never on the cover, and is this what we need? <laughs> this, I'm sure she's a wonderful lady, but... <laughs> There's so much more to us, and that's not what we see on screen. It's not what we see in our magazines. Uh, it's not what we see uh, enough of on television. And so this is why I'm, I'm very passionate about writing books and writing books that have diverse images. So first, I want to take you through the genesis of this particular book, uh, and then I'll tell you a bit about the characters. If no one is reaching for the no-dose or a flame to self-immolate, I will uh, read a, a passage, one of the crazier passages, uh, and then I'll open the floor to questions, and anything is on the table. You can ask anything at all. So, including how old my dress is. It's 10 years old. So, uh, this book grew out of three obsessions. The first was with the mother of all chiclet novels, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which is a book that really accompanies a woman through her whole life and which we read and approach differently depending on the stage of life at which we find ourselves. When we're young, oh, it's a romance. <laughs> After we've experienced marriage, we go, ooh, it's a meditation on marriage. <laughs> and not necessarily a glowing meditation on marriage. Um, 
one of the, I want to talk a bit about what makes it such an enduring novel 200 years uh, after it was written. Part of it, I think, is the appeal of the, the hero, Darcy. In Darcy, uh, Jane Austen created the perfect male uh, love object. He is dark and brooding, and he's also emotionally and financially stable. <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is every woman's dream because usually the dark and brooding is also the one who kicks you around. So when you end up with the one who's not so dark and brooding, but he's nice and he changes the baby's diapers. Darcy has it all. And although he probably would not change nappies because he had servants for that. Uh, it's also very much, as I said, a meditation on marriage. If you really look at the book, there are only two good marriages in um, in Pride and Prejudice. One is the marriage of uh, the aunt and uncle of uh, Elizabeth Bennet. And, and then, of course, there's the hope that Elizabeth and Darcy will have a real marriage based on the right reasons, love, mutual respect, uh, equality of intellect and spirit. It was also a very subversive novel in a way for its time because it's a bit uh, Jane Austen's revenge fantasy. She herself uh, the one big love of her life, she was prevented from marrying because she was a woman with no fortune. And uh, the man with whom she fell in love did have some money and his family wanted him to marry even more. And so he was ripped away from her so that he could marry an heiress. Uh, and he, he lived out his days in Ireland becoming a, a bloated, boring gentleman. Uh, and so she writes in Pride and Prejudice what she wished had happened, which was that a woman of no fortune could marry her intellectual and spiritual equal. When we think about England at the dawn of the 19th century, it was a bit revolutionary to think of someone who was of the nobility marrying someone who was uh, from a social class that was uh, beneath. So it's actually very contemporary in some of its, its themes and some of its undermining of the whole idea of marriage, which is a, certainly an institution under siege for us. The second obsession was, uh, is with a, a historical figure this gentleman, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who was, isn't he hot, ladies? Um, and, and you know you're good looking when you can rock a powdered wig. That's not easy to do. So this gentleman, uh, he was uh, born in the 18th century to a French noble planter in Guadeloupe and his slave wife, uh, slave mistress, Nenon, and uh, who was reputed to be the most beautiful woman on the island. But unlike what happened here with Thomas Jefferson and his sons, he was embraced by his father, he carried his father's title, and he was raised as a gentleman. And when he was, when Joseph Boulogne de Saint-Georges was five, he, his father, his mother, and Mrs. de Saint-Georges all traveled together. This is very sort of François Mitterrand's funeral. This is very French. <laughs> they all traveled together. We don't know how the women felt, but anyway, they all traveled together to uh, Paris. And there, uh, Joseph Boulogne de Saint-Georges' father established him as a gentleman in a proper dwelling and hired for him all the best fencing masters and uh, musical teachers. And he became a prodigy at the violin, a great composer, a great orchestra leader, and one of the greatest fencers in all of Europe. So he kind of had it all. He was also a bit of a swordsman with the ladies. He was very successful. He had a lot of romantic conquests, but no one would marry him because uh, of his color. 
So there was prejudice in his life. He could not, he could not marry a woman who was his social equal, uh, but he was very successful and he lived as a gentleman. So I've always been fascinated by him. I learned about him 12 years ago from an actor, uh, George Stanford Brown. And at first I wanted to do a novel about a woman, good evening ladies and welcome, uh, a woman doing time travel and going back to the 18th century and having an affair with him. And then I thought that's weird and sort of bordering on necrophilia. So <laughs> that may not be the move. Plus, I could just see my agent's eyes glazing over, a woman travels back to the 18th century to have an affair with the men. No. So uh, not, not the way to go. The third obsession uh, was with uh, reality TV, by which I am drawn and at the same time repulsed. Uh, <laughs> as I think we all are, uh, a few confession a few years ago when the, the, um, the Bachelor was first coming on, as someone who wrote for television for years, knowing that this juggernaut would soon eliminate jobs for writers, I was saying to my husband, it's the fall of Western civilization. And he's like, oh gosh, here she goes again. Yes, dear. So uh, then two weeks later, there I was on the bed, and he walked into the bedroom, and he said, what's going on? I said, shh, Trista is not getting a rose, you know. And <laughs> so he said, you know, what happened, Arnold Toynbee, to the fall of Western civilization? Uh, but, you know, it was like watching a train wreck. It was just almost uh, irresistible. At the same time, as the mother of a daughter, I'm very disturbed by the image of 25 women in a hot tub vying for the attentions of one ridiculous man, uh, or 25 beefcakes in a hot tub vying for the attentions of one ridiculous woman. And I wonder, what is this doing to the image of women, to the image of courtship? It's presenting marriage as it was in 1950, a ring by spring. It's the ultimate prize. It's, it's what you want to achieve. Um, we don't have to worry, however, too much about the image of black people in, in reality shows other than the Housewives of Atlanta because in the romance shows, we're like the blacks in horror movies. There's one token of us, and then we die early. <laughs> you know, on The Bachelor, there's a lovely young lady sitting there, and they'll go, oh, you know, Latanya, sorry, I just am not feeling it, so I'm not going to give you a rose. And then, you know, in reverse... There's always some guy sitting there, and they'll go, well, Jason, you know, I mean, I, you're such a nice guy, and you're so special, but I don't think it's going to work out. And really, the bubble over her head should say, on a drunk, dark night, maybe, but I can't bring you home to my parents. So, you know, <laughs> interracial dating has not come to, uh, to these reality shows. Anyway. In the Hadron Collider of my mind, uh, and I, this is why I stay away from alcohol, I put all these three things together um, and came up with Imperfect Bliss. So Imperfect Bliss centers on an interracial family. Uh, the father is British. Um, Harold Harcourt is his name, and he is a professor of science. So this is a family because they live on an academic salary. They are not wealthy. They are wealth-adjacent. They have the smallest house in a very wealthy neighborhood. The mother, for Scythia Harcourt, is a Jamaican woman, uh, and uh, she came from very, very, very humble origins. And uh, she really very infrequently speaks of her background because it was uh, so deprived and so painful. But having grown up under colonialism, you can, you can come on in. You don't have to. We're here to make noise, make a joyful noise. Please come in, handsome man in the yellow. Take a seat. <laughs> See, you have a taker. 
it's date night at the Enoch Pratt Library. So, for Cynthia Harcourt, the mother, grew up under uh, the yoke of British colonialism. And it was very much drummed into her that she was from an inferior caste, that black people did not have uh, the same value as white people or the same history. And it's a, a message that she's very much internalized. And so she's very color struck. And she thinks the best thing she can do is marry a white man and have children who have a chance of lightening up the, the family line, as it were. It's a very sad point of view but it is a point of view that actually exists out uh, in the world. So uh, she is also a staunch royalist, as many... Hello. Your, your date is calling. She wants to know where you are. So <laughs> at any rate, uh, she's a staunch royalist, and um, she frankly feels somewhat robbed that Prince William did not come to uh, Maryland to meet one of her beautiful daughters and that he married, you know, that middle-class girl, Katie, witty Katie. Uh, so she is very intent on all of her daughters marrying well. And they have four daughters. Uh, the eldest, Victoria, is a beauty who works at uh, the Archives of America as a librarian. She's terminally shy. And to her mother's great dismay, she keeps turning down marriage offers. Uh, the heroine, Bliss, real name Elizabeth. By the way, all these girls are named after members of the Windsor clan, after royals. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> Bliss is... Uh, Divorced, 33 and a half, and much to her mother's chagrin, she married an activist, hello, no money, on top of it, Cuban, hello, <laughs> not getting the point at all that mommy was trying to instill. She's very much an intellectual and a feminist, and she's come back home broke with her four-year-old daughter who has a disability uh, to earn her PhD. She and her mother obviously don't uh, get along, and she's trying to pull her life uh, back together. She was very much shattered by her divorce. Her husband was the love of her life. Uh, the third daughter is Charlotte. She's the baby of the family, and she can best be descri described as the family strumpet. Uh, we're a little light on intellect. She's the last one in the brood, so no one was paying attention to her. No one ever bothered to read to her, and it shows. Uh, and, and, and then there's Diana, who is the family great beauty. Think Vanessa Williams when she was 21 years old. Uh, she's 21. She is a junior at Georgetown. And um, <clears throat> she has uh, caught the attention of these uh, television producers by writing a virginity blog. Uh, as one of the producers describes her, she's a multi-culti palin. She's, uh, she's, she's sort of uh, pushing uh, abstinence in a push-up bra. So uh, she is not a truly virtuous person, even though physically she's untouched. Uh, she's very ruthlessly ambitious, and having grown up as one of the poorest families in a wealthy neighborhood, she's intent on uh, earning fame and fortune. So uh, the scene I'm going to read to you is one of the crazier scenes, not one of the more intellectual scenes, but I want you to have a little fun. And because, Jason, we've got to keep you entertained <laughs> before you go off to dinner and not have you mad at your wife. But how could you be mad at that? Hello? <laughs> not bad. Uh, anyway, so um, the show has, has premiered, the, the Virgin. Now, by the way, the premise of The Virgin is she's a doctor-certified virgin, and she's going to get to pick 
her husband out of a pool of eligible suitors that she selected. The, the people that she selected got a, uh, a red lame garter, and the ones that she turned down got a chastity belt. Um, and so, and we're sent off with the elegant line, you have no hope of getting the hymen. So this is, you know, <laughs> tasteful. That this is where reality TV is taking us. And so these men are going to be subjected to a series of chivalric rituals. And, um, and they're, they're going to, and it culminates in a joust. And when I was making this up, my editor called me and said, you know, there's actually a new show called Ultimate Joust. You better get moving on your, so there's nothing you can make up that is more absurd than what actually goes on. So in this scene, the show has premiered and it is a huge hit. The public loves it, and so the, the, the Harcourt home is besieged by crazy fans. And here we go. And after I read this, I, I, before I read this, I have to say, no, I don't take drugs, nor have I ever. So I just, this is just the way my brain works. Okay. Sorry. Technical difficulties. I don't remember what page it is, and I thought I'd folded down the page. Good gracious, forgive me. Uh, I should be humming elevator music so that you're not bored. Okay, here it is. Sorry. Forgive me. Thank you for your patience. As Bliss turned her car down the street, she saw in the glowing light of a late fall afternoon what looked like an enormous mob of placard-wheeling protesters surrounding the Harcourt's home. Had her prayers been answered, and her wildest rescue fantasy come true, had the National Organization for Women, the NAACP, and the Ms. Foundation come to stop her family from participating in a show about a woman trafficking her virtue like a rare commodity? As Bliss drove nearer, she realized to her disappointment that far from sharing her disgust, the world relished the barbaric antics of the Virgin. It had premiered that week to stratospheric ratings. Since filming of the series had begun, the camera crews had drawn handfuls of onlookers, but now a crowd of near-rock concert proportions besieged the neighborhood. Locals and crazed fans from across the country, some holding up handmade signs that spelled the Virgin Rules or Virginity Rocks in glitter, stood outside the house chanting, Virgin, Virgin! <laughs> 101 Windsor Lane had officially become a cheesy 21st century version of Lords, attracting Latter-day pilgrims with fanny packs, desperate to catch a glimpse of the TV network-anointed Virgin. Bliss noticed the matting hordes were blocking the driveway. She parked her car a block away. Why are we stopping here, Mama, Bella asked. I, I just want to figure out what's happening, Bliss reassured her. Besides, we can't get into our garage. Come on, let's get out. In front of the Harcourt garage, news trucks and cameras had set up camp. Taffy Thomas, the local anchor, dressed from head to toe in lemon yellow and teetering on a pair of sky-high platform pumps adorned with large Minnie Mouse bows, delivered a report in the same peppy tone she used whether describing the rescue of a kitten stuck in a tree or a grisly murder. <laughs> We're here in front of the Harcourt manse, she bubbled. Manse? It's barely a tool shed, Bliss muttered under her breath. 
the place where the Virgin grew up. It's a mob scene with neighbors and new fans clamoring to get a glimpse of America's latest sweetheart. Hello, ladies, she boomed, turning to a group of girls wearing pink polo shirts, matching madras skirts and headbands. They all flashed toothy grins. Hi, y'all! Hi, mama! One girl screeched giddily into camera, waving wildly. Where are y'all from, Taffy asked, mimicking the girl's Dixie Belle on Miller Lite drawl. We're from the great state of Kentucky, and we're members of the Me Pure Me chapter of the Alpha Phi Zeta sorority. Me Pure Me? Sounds interesting. What do y'all do? It's what we don't do that counts. We plan to hang on to our purity till we walk down the aisle, the self-appointed spokesperson announced. Come on, girls. Let's give America our cheer. Her Madras-clad cohort of five launched into... Yo, Prince Charming, we know you care, but our bodies we will not bear. Pure is good, pure is fine. We say I do before we cross that line. We'll get busy soon enough. Bring the carrots if you want our stuff. Want to say hello to this kitty? Boy, take a pledge of eternity. Go me, pure me. They ended in full splits with their hands coyly folded over their nether regions. Fantastic, Taffy commented, brimming with insincerity. Suddenly, Charlotte made her way through the crowd to Taffy's side. As usual, she showcased what she considered her greatest asset, her enormous gravity-defying breasts. There's Auntie Charlotte, Brit Bella cried. Unfortunately, Bliss groaned. Charlotte grabbed hold of Taffy's handheld microphone, tussling with her fort. I'm Charlotte Harcourt, the Virgin's sister, she shouted. Several in the crowd cheered and gathered round to film her with their phones and to snap photos. Great, Taffy commented, resting the mic from Charlotte's grasp. Are you a virgin too? Charlotte hesitated a moment. Obviously she's not. Till a brilliant response popped into her head. That's for me to know and America to find out, she said with a hip roll and a wink. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you, Taffy snapped, pushing past her. No doubt the trust and Botox newscaster felt upstaged by Charlotte's natural breasts. Bliss surmised, Taffy moved to a group of attractive men in tuxes, accompanied by young girls ranging in age from 13 to 16, wearing white dresses with ample skirts and glittering crowns. And who do we have here? Taffy asked. Daddy's Girls for Christ and the Virgin of Edison, New Jersey. We pledge to be pure and true to our daddies till marriage, one brunette girl with braces answered, beaming. Our little girls made a vow to stay virgins till marriage, a beefy father explained. We, the daddies, give them those crowns and these rings. He held up his daughter's hand to show a ring adorned with a single pearl topped by a miniature sieve. The pearls and the sieve are classic emblems of virginity. The ancient Vestal Tucha proved her chastity by carrying water in a sieve. That's what virginity is, airtight and miraculous, like our pact. So moving, and what a great idea for a Father's Day gift instead of a tie. Daddy, I'll stay your little girl and keep my legs crossed and my panties on, Taffy exclaimed, exclaimingly pleased with her summary. I just want to say, this show has given real hope to our movement, the father added, getting verklempt. Can I marry my daddy like them one day, Bella asked innocently. Bliss covered Bella's ears before she had a chance to deliver her diatribe against these antiquated and utterly misogynistic customs, the crowd roared. So that gives you a little taste. Um, <laughs> there, there 
are parts that are more edifying for, for the intellectuals in the crowd. Uh, in the book, I create a big opposition between false virtue and real virtue, and, uh, and between a true union and a union based on money and the search for bling. Uh, as in the real Pride and Prejudice, no one really learns anything except the two eldest girls, uh, Elizabeth and uh, Victoria. And what Bliss learns, Bliss is a very open-minded woman, but she is not open-hearted. She is open-minded intellectually, but she is not open-hearted in terms of the way she deals with other people. The original title of Pride and Prejudice was First Impressions. Uh, and Bliss is someone who has come to rely a bit too much on her first impressions. And her prejudices obviously do not run to color, but she certainly has a lot of attitudes about men uh, and about people who may not share her level of education. And so uh, she learns that by opening her heart and getting past that blink, that first impression, she'll lead a much richer and fuller life. So really, it's a book about hope, about resurrection, about picking yourself up when life has knocked you down. Uh, and it's about realizing that your lowest moment may be uh, the crucible in which your best self uh, is born. So thank you for listening, and I open the floor to questions. <laughs> Now, now, if our happy married couple need to go, <laughs> Jason is now looking pained. <laughs> yes. He's patiently. I work in media. Yes. And actually producing and yes. into reality television. Yes. And so I had a conversation, even I asked Jason the other day, and I said, where are we? Where's the line? Yes, where is the where line? Yeah. How are we doing? And is it acceptable? Well, I, I don't believe in censorship. I believe in multiplicities of images. It's fine to have this cover if we also had Susan Rice and Condoleezza Rice on the cover. Um, so I, I worry about the images of women, not just black women, but women in general in reality TV because there aren't enough women, images of women who are actually doing something. I like reality shows that deal with the talent. It's very offensive to me as someone who grew up around great performers to see people who have no visible talent other than shopping <laughs> be, which is a very fine skill, but <laughs> it's, I, I just think it's gone too far. And I know some people who've been involved in them and they really, they encourage the cat fights. It's just, it's the lowest image of women. So I think we can do better and I think, Anybody who's in media, I think, needs to think about the impact of the images. An image like this makes it harder for a professional woman to walk into her office and be seen as something other than an upstart. I mean, that's not overstating the case. We live in a segregated society. So while I don't think we should yank things off the air, um, I do think the producers should stop and think about what is it saying to young girls that these women are pulling each other's hair and just aiming to get married. So that's my point of view. Yeah. <laughs> happy, happy anniversary. Thank you. The gentleman at the back had a question. Yes, sir. Oh, <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Thank you for coming.
Yes, I did. I did. Yes, I told the story. Well, I'm always interested in people who completely defied all of the rules and regulations and the strictures of their time. And uh, I mean, my mother was such a person, and the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the, the French uh, slave code was much stricter than the American slave code. And yet, ironically, because of the European sense of family, the, the, the slave children would, would be nurtured as part of the family. But he was an extraordinary human being. So I'm always fascinated by people who just defied every rule. Uh, and, and also, I just think it's a beautiful and remarkable story, and we need more stories like that, uh, that, that tell us that we're all human, that we can all be anything. Uh, who knew that a black man's music had influenced the young Mozart? I think the more we know of our history, the harder it will be to hate each other. It's like the Genome Project. It is giving the lie to the, the very notion of race. So uh, to me, knowing our history leads us to say, I really can't dismiss this person. I really can't hate this person because I'm related to them. <laughs> and it goes both ways, by the way. So Bronwyn had a question first, sorry, <laughs> then Pat. <laughs> Two years ago, yeah. Right. Right. Yes. I will give you a little, a little snippet. Although I haven't yet submitted the outline to my editor, so she could say no. <laughs> I like the idea of the the time travel to the 18th century guy better. Um, my next novel is going to take a character who is from the Caribbean, who is a mulatto in the 19th century, a woman, and, um, and follow her on her odyssey really around the world. Uh, I went to an incredible symposium on uh, the Haitian Revolution at the New York Historical Society, and uh, actually one of your professors from the University of Maryland, the incredible Ira Berlin, he talked about how one had to readjust one's concept of what the Caribbean was, because now it's that sort of backwater where we go on vacation. Then it was, as they called it, the cockpit of Europe. It was the fulcrum of wealth creation. Uh, it was the economic model for the southern United States. It was extraordinarily important in international affairs. And uh, in doing my research, the father will be Jewish in this uh, story, if, if I get to tell it. And uh, in doing my research, it's been incredible to see that diaspora because under the Inquisition, the Jews were expelled first from Spain, then they went to Portugal, they would be, then they were expelled from Portugal and some went to Amsterdam and London. Then many ended up in Brazil and then the Inquisition came to Brazil and then many of them came to the Caribbean where they had to pay higher taxes than the Christians, et cetera, but where they could live and function. So I'm interested in the notion of looking for one's home. And, uh, and following this woman on her odyssey as she, as she looks for her uh, home and also as she comes into her identity because I'm fascinated by the notion of someone who's the daughter of a slave owner who embraces her and grows up a bit oblivious to the fact that her father owns, owned her mother and owned the people around them. And it's touchy territory, but it needs to be explored because it's something that actually happened. Uh, and then her coming into consciousness about, about that. So, and, and there'll be sex and love and bodice ripping along the way. <laughs>
that's that's the notion. So, yes, Pat. Yeah, the, the segment you read. Yes. Right, and right. Might, we might view it as an extreme, but oftentimes it's really a public reaction, and it may be extreme, but it's real. Exactly. Where, where are we going with this reality television? Is it going to be short-lived? Uh, where do you think we're going? Well, I think we've kind of hit the peak. We're never going to lose it entirely, um, but we have, I think, reached saturation point, and uh, there is a lot of scripted programming that is coming back. And we have now 88 channels, I think, or something, 88 different outlets. So uh, there's a big need for content. Reality shows are very cheap to produce, so they're going to be around. Um, as I said, I don't have a problem with the ones that are actually based on a talent. Um, so, but I, I just, when I was writing, I'd occasionally, I didn't actually watch some of the shows. I would clip on to AOL because it would always be, you know, what was going on in the Egyptian revolution, and then at the same time, you know, what Kim Kardashian and her sister said to each other in their argument. <laughs> and these two things were given the same level of importance on the AOL news. Uh, and there honestly was nothing I could come up with that was any crazier than, than what goes on. So I don't think it's inconceivable that something as vulgar as what I've depicted could come to pass. And, and also, I mean, just look at our, there, there was a, a piece on, on Yahoo about the Octomom because she abandoned one strip club and broke her contract to go perform at another strip club. And it, the headline was, judge decrees that Octomom's uh, pole dancing case is not a legal crisis. I thought, well, thank you, you know. <laughs> Individual mandate, the Octomom, you know, uh, uh, Obamacare in front of the Supreme Court, and the, <laughs> the Octomom, we've reached a state of insanity. So it is, I think it's something we have to watch. And as a public, we need to vote with our channel clickers. So uh, I will say, I had a conversation with someone very high up at BET who said they will not do shows like that because their market research has shown that the, their African-American audience will watch that on other channels, but they don't want to see it on BET because they don't want to see their own being humiliated and made fun of. So that was promising to me. Yes. Absolutely. Well, that's where they built their fortune. Mm -hmm. And I think the new leadership is trying very much to get away from that, but it takes a moment. And you've got the pressure. They're owned by Viacom, which also right. owns MTV, right. which started reality TV. So it's a process. Um, and again, it's all right to have those rum-shaking women if you also have women with some clothes on speaking. <laughs> <laughs> the balance helps. <laughs> so, yes, yes, Marcia. Um, we know that you have produced many television right. shows. Where have you gone with that? I mean, you're looking at the landscape. I think it's getting better again. I'm looking to get back in. Um, which is not more than a notion because I've been out for 10 years. We will go, oh, how old is she? <laughs> She's Methuselah. I have to start lying that I was 14 when I was doing it, like Doogie Howser. Um, 
but I think we're, it's kind of a best of times, worst of times. We've got some amazing stuff. You know, I don't know if any of you have seen Scandal. It's a great show, and uh, there's such intelligent shows out there. Downton Abbey is a runaway hit. Um, so there's real quality. Uh, there's some wonderful work going on and some beautiful writing and acting and some, look at Sigourney Weaver's doing a miniseries. So some of the best talent is coming to television and the BBC is coming to America and they're, they're looking to do miniseries, historically based miniseries. So I think there's a lot of hope in terms of the quality of what we can see. We just have to stay in it. Hopefully, yes. The Virgin. <laughs> yes. Yes. My mother will return from the dead <laughs> and strike me dead. You know, I like to sleep at night and I look to look myself in the mirror and say, I'm not nearly as rich as I would like to be or maybe could be, but I do feel you have a responsibility. Was it Edward R. Murrow who said that television can educate, can elevate, or it can denigrate? He didn't quite put it that way, but it is an incredibly powerful medium. And, you know, when I was working on A Different World and we were going off the air, we had letters from public school teachers who said, I have classrooms of children who have now gone to college because they saw the show. I've had countless young people come up to me, all because of one article in Ebony, <laughs> saying, you used to do that show, and I went to college because of that show. So not to say that everything has to be so elevated and so noble, but you do have to think about what are you putting out there? Are you polluting? Or are you helping? And uh, I just. So that would be a no. Huh? That would be a no. I'm not going to. And I certainly couldn't star in The Virgin. <laughs> yes? Right. Right. Eliminated. That's a great question, um, and I think it's inevitable that we will see more of them because, demographically speaking, they're happening in greater and greater numbers. Interestingly, the least common are black women and uh, white men, which is fascinating, actually. Um, and we won't go into the sad sociological reasons for that, um, what I consider to be sad sociological reasons. Um, we, we certainly have come a long way. I mean, I grew up in an interracial home, and I never saw a family that looked like mine on television, except for the Jeffersons, um, but the father was very much a buffoon, the white father. Um, and this show Scandal basically posits that the white president of the United States is madly in love with a black woman and that that is his true love. So that's pretty revolutionary. On the other hand, we have yet to see a real family depicted, um, which I think would be helpful for people to understand because people say, oh, that must have been so weird. It's like, it's not weird. It's mom and dad. <laughs> you know, and you don't walk around all day going, as you know, your mother. <laughs> And as you know, you know, and everybody has a different experience of it, obviously, de depending on where they were geographically, how the families dealt with it. But essentially, it's two human beings 
raising not Martians but children. Um, we, we were born in Italy. My, my families were ref, my family was re, they were refugees from racism because they married in 1958, and there was so much hate mail and bad press that they literally fled. And in Italy, they weren't racist, but they were naive. And so they came to see us when we were babies because they thought we'd be polka dotted, you know, which is very cute. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's inevitable that we're going to eventually see that. But I, I was surprised. I thought after the election of Barack Obama, because of his background, that we would see, uh, and several times I've tried to pitch stories about interracial families and they've never flown. I think it's still a taboo for us because of our history, because of the incest, because of the rape of black women by white men. Although we're also forgetting that in the 17th century there were marriages between uh, black indentured, white indentured servants and, and black free people. So, you know, our history is so complex and so intertwined and we have yet to come to terms with it. And it just, we'll, we'll get over that hurdle just because of the demographics, I believe. And hope. Yes. Yes, a soap. They actually the soap operas have gone much further than anybody else. But even so, when you have an interracial couple, you never see them in the bed together. Oh, interesting. They, they okay. I haven't watched my stories in a long time. Okay, and they never, they never see. It's still, it's still the disturbing. Yes, Bronwyn. Um, a question. I know that you were in Vanity Fair um, a couple of months ago with Mrs. Cole's daughter, Harriet, and it was a beautiful picture. It was Town and Country. Oh, yes, Town and yeah. Country, I'm sorry. So and I've never made it to Vanity Fair. <laughs> Yep. And it was talking about how the two of you had come together and you had you were sponsoring. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so Misty Copeland is the, the first African-American soloist with American Ballet Theater, which is our nat national ballet company. Ballet has never been a hotbed of integration <laughs> in any country. Um, Interestingly, when Lincoln Kirstein was first forming New York City Ballet and what became ABT, his vision was, and he wrote this, of a company that was half white and half black, and that's back in 1933. So he was a lot more progressive, but then, of course, in the interim, that's not exactly what happened. I'm a big lover of ballet. I was raised by a dancer. I grew up watching the American Ballet Theater, and I, I joined uh, the board. I'm not, no longer on the board, but I was on the board for eight years. And uh, Misty Copeland was one of the young, promising dancers. Uh, and I felt it was very important to support her. Um, and I also initiated a diversity program there because uh, when I had joined the board, we had four promising African-Americans. And then we were down to one. And so I wanted to understand why and what we could do uh, to rectify this, uh, this situation, not through affirmative action, but through really seeking the talent that is out here. So um, there's so many beautiful black dancers. There's so many black dancers who are capable of dancing classical ballet and who want to dance uh, classical ballet. Hello, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, classical music, 
classical violinist, leader of classical orchestras, you know. So that should be open. It should be an aristocracy of, of talent. And Misty is very much leading the way, and she's becoming a national figure. And uh, it is, she's an illustration of when and where I enter, the whole race enters with me. The fact that she exists has given hope to so many people. Uh, there's so many little girls now dancing and realizing it's possible uh, for me to do that. It's possible for me to aspire to do something. So uh, in the in the classical ballet world. Um, so and and she's just beyond gifted and absolutely beautiful. Uh, Prince put her in some of his uh, videos and I was saying and he would come secretly and watch performances and I said to a male friend of mine you know who knew that Prince was a balletto man and he said he's not a balletto man he's a man you know <laughs> she's dropped dead gorgeous so uh, but I also think you know if you're in the room you've got to raise your voice not in an angry way or an accusatory way because it's really not about that um, it, but just uh to be heard and to, to, to make sure that we have representation, that, that our ballet companies look like our nation. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I, I wondered about your creative process. Yes. You um, mentioned an outline that you presented for a new book. Yes. And I wondered, do you... Um, Start with an outline, then, but then change it. I mean, how much you, you've hit the, the nail yep. that you've talked to us about tonight resemble what you. That, that's a great outline. that's a great question. So I do do a very detailed outline. It's about 75, 80 pages, uh, giving the whole backstory. I think about all my characters. I give them a real history. I think about who they are. They have to be very real. You can't just say. She's blonde and she's 22. That doesn't mean anything. So, uh, and in this case, because there was a reality show, I had to construct what the reality show was, what the steps were, and then I did a chapter by chapter outline, which I deviated from about a third, a quarter to a third of, uh, because what one finds in the process is what you planned out is not what your character wants to do, or you get there and you go, this doesn't make any sense, you know. She objects to this, so why would she go? And so, but what the outline gives you is the freedom to deviate. You have to know where you're going to get anywhere. <laughs> so, you know, it's like knowing that you, you've got your GPS, but wow, there's that interesting road down there, and there seems to be a farmer's market. So, I smile because you, just, you call it an outline. Yes. But you've also been a, a writer for television. Yes. Music. It, that you turn, sort of get to a novel? Or? No, believe me, having done both, but <laughs> it's very different uh, because the, the part that's similar is the character development part. And yes, with, with a, a script, you have to think of what's like act one, act two, but this is different because it's, you know, it's 30, 32, 33, 34 chapters and really thinking through every chapter in your head and what happens. Um, so there are similarities, but it's, it's, it's broader, it's more in-depth. Um, and because with a, a screenplay or a script, it's really the actor's going to bring so much to it. You don't have to worry so much about descriptions and really knowing. It, it's, a different, it's a different animal. It's similar, the same 
basic skeletal structure, but the, the anatomy is different. <laughs> but a very detailed outline. Very, very detailed, from which that gives you the freedom when you've got the structure. It's like knowing the rules of grammar. Once you know them, you can veer away. Yes, ma'am. Yes. And I'm tending to try to remember what I read. I mean, I suggested a lot of my students read the book, but could you just give me one character's name? India. India was the main character. She was the divorce lawyer who was kind of a commitment foe. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I was afraid you were going to be one of those people because there are people who didn't like it at all. I was afraid you were going to be, you know, you're lovely, but the book was terrible. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Um, the, Austin is always a voice in my head, and in fact, the original opening paragraph, my uh, agent made me completely rewrite because she said, "You're not Jane Austen, <laughs> and it's not 1815." <laughs> and this this is so arch; it's not going to work. So. Um, she's always in the back of my mind. Um, her humanity, uh, her rich use of language, her humor. So there's no question. There's a there's a dollop of her yeah. in a little bit. Well, they don't get punished, though, the way they did in those 19th century novels. You know, dead under a train, dead from a drug overdose in the 19th century equivalent of, of credit card debt, Madame Bovary. I mean, it's so dire in, in the 19th century. They do, I mean, there, there is a price when one transgresses. And it may be a price that only you know you're paying because you're the only one who knows you did it, but there's the guilt. Uh, but I wasn't trying to say, oh, this is such an awful thing. I mean, I think in the case of the main character, she should have done it. Uh, mistakes are the price of an interesting life. It was through committing this error that she discovered herself. It's a running theme for me, women coming to terms with the imperfection of life and of love and of relationships between men and women and with their own internal imperfection. Uh, because idealists are Nazis. We're, we're very hard on ourselves, <laughs> and it's not a very good way to live your life. Uh, but I certainly wasn't trying to condemn what they had done. I'm glad that you saw that they were punished, because I had the complaint very often, these women are awful, and they should, you know, they should be burned at the stake. It, it was really an interesting litmus test for uh, Victorian attitudes towards women and our sexuality. And I want to say, you know, all these men are cheating. Do they think they're all cheating with prostitutes who let them keep their socks on, you know, a la Governor Spencer, it's, it's a big wide world out there. Nice girls cheat too. So, yes, the last one, sorry, yeah. Okay, so I've only written three books so far, so <laughs> we're not there yet. Um, I would probably like to see One Flight Up made into a film because I think it's one of the ones that lends itself the most to it. Um, Always Where Joy was a memoir. There are elements of it that would make a great film. Um, I, I worry about my family. <laughs> my father's still alive, you know, uh, but my parents' love story would actually make a great film. Um, so, but I, I, as great as it would be to see a film made 
one also cringes to think who would they cast, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so God bless me, it should happen, but um, I'm very happy to be able to convey my vision and for the people to live as I see them, as opposed to, you know, having somebody horribly miscast as, <laughs> as one of the characters. So we'll see. Thank you for having me.